This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking with Danielle Claude, who is a zoologist, a biologist, a natural history author, and an animal expert based at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Her new book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future, is an amazing journey into the hidden life of the koala, revealing what life is really like up in the trees. Welcome, Danielle. Good to be here. Thanks for being here. For our listeners here in uh, northern New Mexico, Danielle is joining us from Australia right at the moment. So mm. welcome, welcome. Have you ever been over here? Oh, yes, I have. I, I did it. I drove across America straight after I finished university. So I drove, you know, from one side to the other to get home. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> so let's let's talk about koalas and what compelled you to write this book. Well, I guess, you know, koalas are really well known pretty much everywhere, but they're certainly really well known in Australia. We take them for granted a, a bit. We, you know, we all have koala toys as kids and read about them in children's books, um, but very few people actually see them in the wild. However, where I live in the Adelaide Hills, they're quite common. So I guess that was what really sparked my interest was how come we were hearing all these reports of them going extinct on the East Coast, and yet they were quite abundant where in the particular small area that I live in. So I was interested to know what was going on there. Now, we know, uh, what was it, in 2019 and 2020, there were horrible fires that just ravaged the uh, the koala population, I guess, in parts of your country. Is that what was related to to this this sort of dying out, or is it something else? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The um, the the fires did cause a lot of concern, and it did raise a lot of awareness, and it created a lot of interest overseas because you know the fires are dramatic. There were all these videos of burnt koalas and injured koalas, so right. that's that's sort of a a really horrific thing. Uh, fires do pose a serious risk to koalas, but it's kind of like the straw on the camel's back. The issue with koalas, a lot of it is that their habitat has been lost. You know, the forests have been cut down. They're now fragmented into little sort of islands, really, rather than a big continuous sea of forest. And so when bushfires hit, the koalas have nowhere to go and also nowhere to repopulate from. So it makes it much easier for local populations to go extinct. So it's it's really the encroachment of civilization that is is knocking them out in these in these areas. Yeah, certainly that's a really big threat. I mean, I, I think, you know, climate change has always been a risk to koalas and like most animals, they have they have had to deal with that in the past. But the changes we're seeing now are so rapid and so vast that it, it's hard for a species to adapt and adjust to that. As you mentioned there, I don't think the koala toys are restricted to Australia. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's a very, very popular animal here in the States as well. And I think probably everywhere in the world. So obviously the, the, the toys are wonderful to play with, but are these animals as cuddly as they look? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> they they kind of can be. I mean, they they're not uh, they're not pets. They're not you know domesticated animals. They're 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 wild animals, and and of course they're dangerous in that sense to approach. They have very large, very very sharp claws because they need them for to climb trees. You know, gum eucalyptus trees, gum trees are hardwoods, 
they're smooth they're often smooth backed they're really hard they're very tall and very straight so so they can be really hard to climb so they need these sharp claws and they do bite too but generally speaking as a as a species they're pretty amiable so so they're not aggressive as long as you leave them alone they're quite happy to leave you alone so and joeys baby koalas are obviously very cuddly with their mums and you know if they're orphans then they'll be cuddly to other things so so yeah that that does give them their cuddly reputation so you said that there are quite a few where where you live right now what is that what is their habitat like yeah, so koalas live in most of the eucalypt forests in Australia, particularly on the east coast. The eucalypt forests are very diverse, so we have a lot of different species of eucalypts. They're not dominated by one species so much as lots of different species. So koalas are adapted to eat a lot of quite a few different species of eucalypts. You know, there's 900 species of eucalypts in Australia. The koalas are known to eat 70, and each individual koala will eat only between four and ten species say of eucalypts so that means they need a really big area of forest to to support them so one koala will need a forest the size of an average sports field in order to have enough food to support it so they're very widely dispersed animals for just one you're saying for just one and in some areas where the forest is very arid so in the inland areas um where there's not much water one you might only get one koala in an area the size of central park in new york <laughs> okay well that's that's really uh, that's interesting because you know I, I think at least certainly i did i had this idea that you'd walk into the forest and there'd be a, a koala in every tree or something and i don't know if that's <laughs> how it works out yeah, no. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, koalas are quite hard to spot. So, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a there's an art form to spotting koalas high up in the trees. But there are in, in Adelaide and in some other parts in Victoria, there are some areas where you can reliably spot koalas and, and there's sometimes you do find more than one in a tree, but you've got to know which trees to look for. Again, the, this is a very popular animal, so zoos all over all over the world have koalas i'm sure how easy is it to care for these animals yeah extremely difficult they're one of the most expensive animals to keep in zoos um mm. they're, they're super expensive and that's because of their food requirements so you have to have um a quite a big forest area you know you have to have a big plantation of eucalypt trees for a start this is one of the reasons why San Diego Zoo was one of the first zoos to successfully establish a colony of koalas. It was because they had already been colonised by eucalypt trees. <laughs> the, the trees had been planted, um, you know, during the gold rush for windbreaks and street trees and things like that. So they already had a, a, some supply of trees, but they had to plant their own eucalypt plantations. So koalas are actually not the most common animal to get in zoos it's a highly specialized process to keep them i keep going back to, i'm looking at the, the the picture on the front of your book here of the koala mom and her little baby on her back and you know they're obviously the, the these adorable animals but they've also been used uh for their fur <laughs> yes yeah they do that that's a pretty sad part of koala history and that's probably where our current modern interest in koalas comes from. Ko koalas in the early days of European um, settlement of Australia weren't particularly focused upon. They weren't that interested in them. The si even the scientists didn't seem to be very interested in them. But uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they started disappearing because they were being they were hunted for fur, and there were millions of pelts 
being taken out of Australia and exported to the fur markets in the US and in the UK. And that caused great concern. They did, they were declared extinct in the southern forests. And that actually prompted a public campaign from people who were concerned about the environment. But importantly, it was children's writers. Women were writing books about Blinky Bill is the famous book, which maybe some people will have seen as a cartoon form that's gone around the world now. But that book was really about saving koalas. It was a plea to protect these animals and a story about how they were under threat and what threatened them, even though it's also a fun story. But um, so, so I think that interesting, the children's toys actually then kind of sparked off the whole toy thing. Sadly, I think actually some of the early toys were made from koala fur, oh, um, which is a bit horrific. But the thing that changed that really was Australia did introduce re regulations but wasn't all about koalas but wasn't that good at um, implementing them but they appealed the wildlife people appealed to the American president Herbert Hoover about this their concern over koalas and he banned the importation of koala fur and that that dried up the market um, oh. and the koalas came back and and were saved. I never would have uh, realized that we had a relationship to saving the uh, the koalas uh, that uh, reached all the way to the presidential level here. So that's uh, <laughs> that's an interesting little note. Yeah, yeah. Why were the why was that first so popular? Well, it's not it's not like the softest in terms of furs. It, it I mean it is soft and, and, <laughs> and fluffy, but it's not not it's quite coarse fur. Um, it's it's supposed to be moderately hard wearing but I think it's quite waterproof so it was it was tended to be used on coats in cold climates got it a big part of this book is um about the relationship between koalas and humans what's one of the key things you really want people to understand about that relationship yeah I, th I think koalas are, are very far from being our most endangered animal unfortunately we've got a lot of uh, animals that are right on the cusp of going extinct but I think koalas are a really important flagship species for conservation because so many people know about them, so many people care about them. And and koalas really elicit a strong reaction from humans. I think they react a really they they produce a really strong parental response. You know, that the koalas appeal to us as primates, they they appear childlike and you know they, they the way they hold on to the trees is is very childlike the way they hold on to people if they're picked up their faces are very appealing with the forward facing eyes and the big nose that you know they're, they're we're primed to really respond to koalas they cry when they're in pain or upset or distressed so that you know you if you have an orphaned joey or or a young koala that's in trouble it, it will cry and it will hold its arms up you know? yeah. <laughs> whether it's wanting to climb you as a tree or <laughs> we're looking for help mother. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, but for us, that ticks all our boxes. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's, so they do elicit this really strong reaction. And I think koalas are actually a really robust and resilient species. They've bounced back from extinction many times, near, not extinction, near extinction. So if they're in trouble, that really says something about how we're not looking after our environment and, you know, that 
by protecting koala habitat, we can actually protect a whole heap of other species. And understanding the importance of forests to koalas helps us understand the importance of forests to all of us. They're just as important for us in our long-term survival as well. So I guess that's the message I'm trying to get across is how we think about animals and that we need to think about koalas not just as fluffy toys but as species that exist in an ecosystem and in their full complexity. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Great conversations from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right hand corner to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. And I can vouch for the human reaction to uh, to the koalas. I was talking to someone just before this interview who had been to Australia and had actually held a koala. Mm. And, and she said that she could still feel it today, that that sensation and that immediate kind of connection she made with this animal, which, you know, perhaps she's particularly inclined towards animals in general, but she made a point of saying it was very different with this koala. And I guess, you know, maybe it is, uh, uh, as you said, it ticks so many boxes for, for our own reaction. Uh, those are all human type characteristics. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, with a sign to, uh, to that animal, apparently they even have, uh, they have fingerprints just like we mm-hmm. do. They do. They do. It's quite distinct. They're one of the only animals outside primates that have fingerprints. So, which, which, it just appears to be a, an, an odd little f- developmental fluke. <laughs> um, sure. But it, it, could, it could be to do, we don't really know how koalas feel or how they use their, their hands. It doesn't appear to be to do with grip. Um, you have bigger ridges if you're going for grip, you know, a bit like a pair of gloves with the, with the big ridges on them. So fingerprints are, seem to be something to do with fine tactile sensation. They might actually increase the sense. We know how sensitive our fingertips are, and fingerprints do appear to resonate the sensations through the fingers. So whether, whether that applies to koalas or not, we don't know. Nobody's asked them. Yeah, right. <laughs> but they've got them. The food they eat is uh, pretty toxic. It is, yeah. Eucalypts are quite difficult for mammals to eat. Like mo- like, like a lot of plant matter, plant matter is difficult. You know, the cellulose and the lignin uh, in the really tough leaves are very hard to digest. And, and most mammals have to, they f- firstly have to have very complex stomachs, as we know, most herbivores have complex stomachs. But um, they also need to have a um, my- bacteria, a microbiome to help them break down that cellulose and lignin. So, so koalas also have that very special gut biome. Um, and it's probably, it probably seems to be specific to the particular trees they're eating. So the form of the leaves is different depending on the species of, of leaf. So koalas need a particular batch of, of bacteria um, which they get from their mother um, during the weaning process. So they get that that handed down to them, as it were. But the toxins are another matter. They actually have to deal with the toxins through their liver. So koalas have an absolutely supercharged liver. It's quite big and quite complex, and it has a double dose of the genes needed to remove toxins. And it's it's so efficient that koalas are actually really difficult to treat with medicines. 
so they right. they suffer right. yeah they suffer from chlamydia quite well, that's a big disease problem for koalas oh. and um a dose of uh, you know a dose of medicine for a human to treat chlamydia might be a three-day dose in a koala that will be a 30-day dose for a much smaller animal so that's that's the level of that's their liver getting rid of those drugs <laughs> so oh, wow. yeah so so, which also brings me to a, a common myth that koalas are um, stoned or drugged out on on the eucalypts. People sometimes have heard of that story. Not with that liver. There's, there's, no, <laughs> the, that liver's not going to let any of that happen. Yeah, they're just sort of naturally blissed out, I guess, right? They are. Uh, They've got a very chill, relaxed life, and they can sleep quite happily in the trees. They're safe from most predators. So, why would they do anything else? Right. So they eat all these eucalyptus leaves. Do these do these animals smell like cough drops? <laughs> yeah, I mean they 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 do smell eucalyptusy for sure. <laughs> so they're quite it's quite a nice smell. That you know they they also have the mammal mus, musky sort of mammal smell as well. But yeah, no, they smell fine. You can smell uh, male koalas actually, particularly males, communicate with um, scent glands. So they mark the trees with a scent gland on their chest. If you look at pictures of koalas, you sometimes see they've got a dark stain down the middle of their white chest, and that's a male. Um, so they rub on the trees and tell everybody they're there. And you can actually smell koalas if you if you walk through the forest, if you if you know what you're smelling for. <laughs> but it's not an unpleasant smell. No, well, that's that's a nice turn then. <laughs> you mentioned that these animals get chlamydia, which is you know commonly known as a sexually transmitted disease. Is it the same for them, or are they picking it up a different way? Yeah, no, it is sexually transmitted. So that is the, that is the common um, way it's transmitted. But it's it's an awful disease in koalas. It, it causes terrible symptoms. You know, weepy eyes, the the you know ulcers around the urinary, urinary tract, and it does ultimately it will cause blindness. It causes infertility. While they're infected, they obviously pass it on to their offspring and and ultimately it kills them and it's very, very painful. So so that causes a great deal of distress both for koalas and for the people who care for them. They also suffer from a retrovirus which causes an a koala AIDS. So huh. that obviously exacerbates the symptoms of any other diseases that they have. So, so those two are causing a lot of problem on the East Coast and that's what, one reason why koalas are doing poorly there but you know in other areas they also have chlamydia but they don't suffer the same symptoms they seem to be able to manage it so it does point to environmental stress you know we know that when populations are under stress then diseases become a bigger problem are there active programs out there to try and uh, uh, either assist or cure the uh, the koalas of stuff that they're able to be cured of Mm. Yeah, well, like I said, treating them for chlamydia is problematic because you know because they're hard to hard to treat. But there are vaccines being developed, which seem to be successful. So they're working on on vaccinate broad scale vaccination, especially of um, young young animals before they've developed symptoms. So so that does it does appear to be rolling out at the moment. So ho hopefully that that will become something that we can do in those reducing populations that are under a lot of stress so that we can protect those populations that are that are isolated and struggling. Danielle, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the koala population was ravaged by these wildfires you had uh, in uh, in Australia. Have you written anything else related to that? 
Sure. I've certainly written quite a lot about um, bushfires and the impact of bushfires on human populations. And as I live in a fire prone area and I've had, you know, been threatened by fires several times. In fact, we had one a couple of years ago that burnt through my neighbourhood. My neighbour's house was lost. So, you know, that that's something that's very important to me. And learning how to live safely with bushfires in in a bushfire prone region is a big issue. And there's a, and I've done a lot of work in that in terms of how people can prepare both mentally and physically for their plan on how to be safe in a fire. You know, in Australia, fires are just a integral part of the environment there's there's you know our forests are highly flammable if we want to live anywhere near nature then we're at risk of fires really so um, we really have to be well prepared and we have to work out how to ourselves how to live safely you know each person has to defend their own their own life and safety so um yeah i've done a lot of work on that and a future in flames is is the book i've sort of articulated what that what that process is and what Australians have learned from living in a hot, the most fire-prone continent. Well, we uh, here in northern New Mexico are in a fairly fire-prone area, so that uh, would probably be of interest to a lot of folks here as well. So I'll, if the link is available, I will make sure it's part of the podcast. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate sure. that. You said that koalas have bounced back from near extinction a few different times. What's their life cycle? How do they reproduce? Yeah, well, they, you know, like most marsupials, they give birth to a very tiny little little joey, a little pink um, jelly bean sized um, baby that crawls up through the mother's fur and into the pouch um, and attaches itself to the nipple. And then it stays there and continues its development in the pouch. So they kind of have an external stage to pregnancy. And then the baby will start to emerge from the pouch so they have a, a lovely system marsupials where the babies pop in and out of the pouch which sounds like a great great idea i reckon i think we really missed out on our reproductive process there <laughs> <laughs> so they typically just have one joey and, and it's quite a slow process to wean and raise a baby koala that, you know because their food supply is, is fairly low in nutrients and depending on australia's got a very oscill oscillating climate so we you know we'll have 10 or 20 years of drought and then 10 or 20 wet years so it's it's a very long climate shift if you like um rather than the annual seasonal shift so koalas do well in wet seasons and not so well in dry seasons, uh, and that causes their populations to wax and wane in different areas. How long does it take to wean a joey from its oh, They always get caught on these numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Questions. I should know that off the top of my head. <laughs> I'm thinking it's about eight months, but I could be wrong on that. I have to read my own book and check. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, for, for those of you who are interested, get the book and you'll be able to find out. So this is not your first book. No, no. I've, I've written quite a few. This is about number 13, I think I'm up to now. Okay. And they're not all about koalas. No, no. I'm, I broadly do write on environmental themes. So my background is in biology and animal behavior, but but I, I'm really interested in science broadly and, and the natural sciences in particular. So so I've written on a broad range of topics. You know, I've written on the history of bushfires in Australia, you know, on killer whales or orcas, on biologists and women in science. So I've written biographies, um, quite a lot on early early European exploration and scientific discoveries in Australia. So, yeah, yeah, a pretty wide range of books. 
Okay, so if you do, in fact, enjoy Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future by Danielle Claude, there's a lot of other material out there that she's produced that we can go look for. Where can we find Koala? Well, Koala's being published in the U.S. by W.W. Norton, so you can go straight to their website, but it'll be distributed into all the, the bookshops. So, yep, your local independent bookshop should have it, or you can get it online, you know, through the, through the online stores as well. Very good. As we're getting ready to wind up, what would you have everyone remember or, or remind everyone about uh, koalas? Ah, oh, that's a good question. I, I think I would, I would say that you know, this the fate of koalas is tied up to our own fate, and koalas tell us how well we are or are not looking after our world. And so, animals like koalas remind us to to stop our mad race to achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve. Sit back, have a look at what we're doing, and make sure we're looking after the world around us. Well, you have been listening to Danielle Claude, who has written the book Koala: A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Danielle, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And for Radio Free Galisteo. I'm John Shannon.